Hello and welcome to the Resilience Research Group's monthly seminar series. Each week we will be joined by a panel of researchers, organisations, health and social care workers and the public to discuss one topic related to resilience. On this week's podcast we will be discussing an introduction to resilience. Could this week's panel please introduce themselves to our audience? Hello, my name is Dr. Seanach Anderson and I am a research psychologist and neurodiversity consultant and also a member of the RRG Steering Committee. My interest is in resilience and neurodiverse individuals and neurodiverse communities. I'm Jo Boyden, Professor Emeritus of International Development from the University of Oxford, former Director of Young Lives, a longitudinal study of children in poverty. My interest in resilience is about children in extreme circumstances, such as armed conflict and forced labor. I am Dr. Orit Nutman Schwartz, a full professor at the Sapir School of Social Work in Israel, founder and chairing this school for its first decade. I'm a research fellow at Greater Manchester Mental Health, and I'm also on the ROG steering group as well. So I'm, a, I'm slightly a little less academic, I suppose. So I run a startup here in Australia. So my background is more organizational psychology, and we're doing uh, mainly research in uh, assessment of resilience and how do we use technology to be able to build resilience and try to maintain more longer-term engagement from people. Hi there, my name is Dr. Heather Prime. I'm an assistant professor at York University in Toronto, Canada. I'm Sue Northrop. I set up and run Dementia Friendly Slothian, which is a social enterprise. Um, very much practitioner, uh, community psychologist, uh, but originally uh, organizational in my training. Hi everybody, I'm Dr. Rebecca Graber and I am a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Brighton in the UK. And I'm specifically interested in how supportive relationships can promote resilience, specifically, um, especially with children and young people. My name is Ruth Ergeli, I'm the European Director of the Resilience Advisors Network. We are active in resilience-focused research diplomacy and community resilience research from diverse aspects. Uh, looking forward to future cooperation. Yes, I'm uh, Professor Kate Bennett in psychology at the University of Liverpool. I am Dr. Jenny Liu, a postdoctoral associate at the Department of Psychiatry, Schulich School of Medicine at Western University. I also hold appointments at the Daphne Cockwell School of Nursing at Ryerson University and the Toronto Western Hospital, Crumble Research Institute, University Health Network. I'm um, a researcher in the Department of Biostatistics and Health Informatics at King's College London. I'm Dr. Jennifer McGowan. I'm a lecturer at UCL and founder of the Resilience Research Group. My research is on resilience in relation to health psychology. Thank you everyone, it's really great to meet you all and it's great to have such a, a wide range of, of interests in resilience as well that we can draw upon in this and in the later podcasts. So I'm going to start with a really simple one and we're looking for uh, short answers here based on your, your field and your background, which is uh, finish the sentence, uh, resilience is, and then tell us from your perspective what you believe resilience is. 
In my field, uh, resilience is uh, a better than average response to stress. So it can be defined as the ability to attain, maintain or regain well-being in the face of a stressful event. Resilience is a process of change in light of adversity, of adaptive change in light of adversity. Resilience is essential uh, for patients in secure forensic settings where they're very often subject to disproportionate risk aversion, disproportionate restriction and um, markedly untherapeutic conditions. Um, it's necessary for their mental well survival and ultimately recovery. Uh, from my perspective, resilience is an evolving capacity and it's a process made up of uh, our needs in, a, in relation to how much resources we have to support those needs. I want to burst into song, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again, but not quite in the same place. <laughs> Resilience is um, adjusting to life challenges with the support of um, both internal and external systems. So I use a, a definition which is, let me read it because we always use this, which, which we've also operationalized, which is the process of effectively negotiating, adapting to or managing significant sources of stress or trauma. Assets and resources within the individual, their life and their environment facilitate this capacity for adaptation or bouncing back in the face of adversity. I guess the other thing that I want to say is that I feel very strongly that this is something which is not something for which an individual is responsible. That this is something for which we are all responsible as a community and as a society and I strongly object to any kind of neoliberal blaming of individuals if they are not in a position to uh, achieve resilience. I wanted to support some of the things others have said. It's For me it's much as much a process as anything. It's overcoming extreme adversity and I think that's really important this is not just an just an everyday quality but I also want to emphasize it's both about individual and collective and I think that point has also been made it's really fundamental that this is not just about individual attributes and personality style and so on it's about relationships and community mechanisms and processes I agree because I think also that resilience is the combination between the individual that he can achieve resources from the community and the community has the ability to supply their, their clients, the individual's needs. And I think this is the dynamic. And I agree also with the fact that the question is when we measure it or when we a look at it, whether before, during, and after the adversity. And for me, the main point is what happened after the adversity, whether people succeed to return to their routine. To me, resilience is the ability of societies and systems, communities and individuals to embrace, adapt to, uh, um, 
transform and, and recover from adverse events, uh, reducing risks, losses and impact on all, while leading to a safer, more sustainable uh, existence or, or, or functioning. It, it seems as though you're, that there might be a variety of definitions that people are using in different kinds of settings or whether they're talking about an individual or a community and um, perhaps also there are different ways of measuring it too. Um, uh, this is a very naive uh, view of it as well, but um, does it always need to include like a stressful event? So I guess, you know, there could be a disaster or it could be a pandemic, but what about those people that might live in a sort of chronic chronically stressful life. Um, would anybody have any comments about, about that kind of situation? The definition I like to use is advancing despite adversity. And I had a lot of thoughts about the words and what goes in between advancing and diversity. So advancing is more about, you know, moving towards something that's, you know, meaningful and always having that sense of, you know, I'm doing th something that matters to me. But the word despite for me is something that it's it's denoting not just, you know, some some big kind of crisis, but it can also be, you know, other types of things like everyday things that just keeps going and that's always there. It doesn't have to be about something really big and it you don't necessarily even need to have adversity in the first place. It doesn't, because you can always learn from other people as well and build resilience based on that as well. So, so that's kind of where uh, I've, I've had a lot of thought about, you know, the relationship of resilience to adversity, which doesn't necessarily need to be so specific in a traumatic event, uh, which is kind of how it's often thought about. So, so yeah, I totally agree with that idea. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're living with dementia, you don't come out of the adverse bit at the end um, at all. Uh, and in fact, I think there's something really important about remembering the lived experience about this. And it is absolutely essential to understand that you can't define it from the outside. There was something on Radio 4 about this this morning as well. Um, it, whatever somebody feels is their resilience, their strength, however they define it, is really, really critical. Um, and um, so I think we have to understand it as what is experienced and by that person at that moment um, and whether it's good or bad. Carrying on from what's just been said, I think it's very important to understand what individuals who are experiencing um, adverse events, be it in the long or short term, how they experience our, um, resilience, how they frame it, what it means to them. I think in order for resilience search to be meaningful, it's important to know how the individuals who, who are being studied um, experience and frame resilience. Thank you. Yes, absolutely echoing um, a lot of what has been said that um, Resilience can um, be unfortunately framed by people who haven't experienced that form of marginalization or that challenge. And I think it's really important that um, any definition of resilience has substantial room for that to be framed by the people who've experienced it. And that's a, certainly a passion of mine in, in my work is um, just looking at well, what does resilience mean in this context, but what that looks like, what that manifests like, and what might be an appropriate marker of any kind of outcome. That I think it's really important to, to have ownership of that by that community, whatever that looks like. So if it's something of a shared trauma or adversity from 
uh, prolonged conflict that that that's shaped um, by those people if it's um, a shared uh, shared illness diagnosis by them and I think especially with children and young people methodologically there's a need for putting a variable on it sometimes but um, I like saying can you always how much can you think about this in terms of the lived experience of the of people and what is important to them and what they consider or we consider if we're part of that group uh, what we consider to be resilience um, that I don't think resilience has to be related to a, a large adversity. I think it can be related to anything that happens in your life. It can be, it can be bullying, it can be work-related stress, it can be problems with finances. It can just be day-to-day be -day struggle and it's about how people do or do not cope with that in their own individual way. So actually for me, having some kind of challenge is important. Um, there's a lot of work in, uh, you know, which might look at well-being, might look at other quality of life, for example. So for me, resilience is about having some kind of, of challenge, that there is a point at which there is something uh, which is challenging. I, th I do think of resilience as an outcome, but it's also with lots of sub-outcomes and it's dynamic. So um, a, a, a former student of mine, when he was doing his dementia work, uh, on dementia care has talked about it was trying to like going up a downward moving escalator so that you might reach a point at which you were resilient and then there would come another challenge which might not be a big challenge it might be you know somebody um, in, in becoming perhaps uh, more disinhibited for example or, 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 or more, more difficult or, or the, the speed at which the dementia was increasing and that would mean that you might then be no longer resilient and there's some work that I've done in uh, with Swiss longitudinal data which looks at trajectories following bereavement in older widows where you will find that well some people will move from a position of not being resilient and just coping or being vulnerable to a position of being resilient but also in the other directions so you know that's kind of quantitative large-scale data which suggests that, that that it's not a kind of you know once you've got there you've made it as it, as it were, and it's important to understand the factors that m make, that, that facilitate, but also hinder uh, resilience. I also think that this is very, uh, or more complex phenomena, that on one hand, we can consider it as a threat that a people has from the beginning of his life. On the other hand, we can think about it as a process that change from time to time, maybe in front of adversity, maybe, you know, in front of regular uh, events. And I think also it's important for what purpose we need to define it. For what? For helping people or just expand our knowledge. And I'm not sure that we, um, have a kind of a definition, what purpose of our meeting in order to make a decision of a shared definition or consensus definition. I kind of just wanted to go back to touch on something that I think Rebecca started to highlight and that was kind of using almost the voices of those that were researching as well in 
terms of helping us to define resilience. And I think it just highlights even more like the importance of patient and public involvement in our research and helping them, having them to help us as well to kind of define and like evaluate what we're interested in. Um, Cause I know when I was doing some research with children in schools, we were trying to define resilience. So we um, asked parents and teachers about how they would define resilience. And it was interesting because they were defining it more um, almost using like terms around grit. And we were looking at it from more of a ability to bounce back from stress. And that then impacted what we were researching and just kind of, kind of changed that. So The research is very clear that um, the experience of adversity is a part of that, that resilience is in, in response to adversity and it's cumulative. So I think the point about chronicity is really crucial. I think a, a lot of the early research in this field was very focused on a single event and on the ability to overcome a single event. But I think the, that it is a process, it accumulates over time. And the other thing that I think people are touching on is the multiple the multiple forms of adversity that, that are really most common. I mean, the, it's very, very much the case that people who experience one form of adversity also confront others, whether it's a combination of poverty and, and violence or whatever, but it's the cumulative effect that actually is more likely to overwhelm. And therefore it's the long-term and how do you help prevent people from being overwhelmed by long-term processes of adversities is from my perspective, the most important thing. And how they perceive it, how they understand it, as, as people have said, is absolutely fundamental. In the research we've done, we see that if people feel overwhelmed, then they're more likely to be overwhelmed. So what you're always looking for is, you know, sort of positive reinforcing and protective mechanisms that prevent that from, you know, from being overwhelmed. Actually, completely agree with everything that Joe has just said. And in addition to that, I just want to emphasize that while we all can, can kind of agree that resilience is, is like a process and it's definitely different than the sort of the single trauma contingent way of looking at it uh, traditionally, what resilience looks like in the context of different needs might not always be the same as well. Uh, and there needs to be a distinction between what we think resilience ought to look like and things like well-being or thriving or flourishing, which sometimes gets thrown in the mix and can impose certain sort of expectations in certain ways that people think or can contribute to them feeling like they're not resilient. I think that's really important to distinguish as well. Sometimes surviving is being resilient in different contexts as well. Uh, I'm just struck by the how we would be talking if we were talking about community rather than individual resilience. And as, as we sit in our communities that have got most of us through in one piece, despite everything that's happened, including a lot of loss, um, a community, our communities aren't bouncing back to how they were. <laughs> our communities didn't react by, they reacted differently than our, our personal reaction. And I'm not quite sure how to articulate that because in my head, I'm still going, no, that isn't what the community did. The community, some people put their hands up, it got onto Facebook, neighbors started talking, it started connecting. It started linking to the resources, spreading out into all the assets we have available, reaching out to get people that we knew, we always knew were socially isolated, 
now we are their neighbours and friends and contacts. That process has left us completely changed. Some people are back on the golf course, some people are back doing whatever. But there is a sense that our communities are different and we don't want them to go back. We want them to grow and strengthen. I think um, the, for all that, uh, you know, everything is uh, with COVID, one thing that I think it really has highlighted is that the structural um, underpinnings of resilience are far more structural than we perhaps would have given credit for. Now that the um, structures of formal and informal support, that work patterns have been shaken up, that food scarcity has become an issue for people for whom it hasn't been before, um, educational systems upended and questions about what education is supposed to do, um, that's coming out. Uh, the way that we're seeing different medical systems and healthcare systems respond, different leadership styles respond. Um, I think that whilst there's obviously a lot of space for individual level factors and temperamental aspects and, and things that are situated at that level, we really can see just how social we are and how connected we are and how that is not a vulnerability, but that is a strength and the ways in which we conceptualize resilience, those were done within a framework of believing certain things to be true. <laughs> and now we've seen when that isn't true and when we've all had to face that in various degrees, um, being in different boats, not the same boat still. And so I think then that that is that's a real big shakeup for us too, I think. And um, echoing the point that's been brought before about that you can't go back. And I think that on an individual level, we know that anyway, even though we talk sometimes about bouncing back. But of course, any major life transition, you are still there at the other end of that transition. And so while we do think about markers of returning to adaptive functioning or healthy functioning, the language we have for that, I think, is very limited because we can, we don't actually work in reverse. Um, and it's, I think, really challenging and eye-opening to see these things shaken up in such a profound way. And I think this relates to another pressure that, um, I, Laura, that you picked up about um, people seeing resilience in terms of grit. I would personally take issue with that. And I don't know whether that's a fair thing for me to do, um, but it reminds me that that um, lay people, for lack of a better word, their, their expectations of what healthy functioning is and what their expectations for themselves are also shaped by culture and family influences, etc. And sometimes that isn't a very fair or healthy understanding. Other times it really is. And I, I think you take caution in interpreting that. Um, but yeah, I'm just kind of highlighting that, that um, part of, I think, resilience research now, no matter where you stand on it, is trying to be reflexive around that and, and being willing to examine what we mean by it. Thank you. And I think uh, all the different definitions there are of resilience is something we're definitely going to go into in, in our next podcast of, of how uh, different people define it in different ways and, and what we consider to be and, and not to be resilience as well. well. You know, would everybody feel and agree that 
resilience is something that you can teach, that you can learn? And is there a tipping point at which somebody, I'm talking about an individual, I guess, or it could be at a community level, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but is there a point where resilience might break down? Um, and if you are resilient in one situation, does that mean that you have a, a higher likelihood of being resilient in another situation? Resilience is something I think that we learn or lose throughout our lives. I think it is something that is learned, but it's also based on what support and cope mechanisms you have available at any point in time and what experience you have of adapting those to the stress that you're currently facing as well. So I think people can be resilient in some situations, but also not in others based on their previous experience and their current environment. It's definitely a dynamic process that can be lost. There's no question about that. And I think there's a lot of evidence um, in conflict zones of people in older generations, actually their resilience just breaking down, having been very resilient throughout life. So if you take a life course perspective, I think one needs to look at the way it changes with different milestones and transitions in, in life. I'm not convinced it can be trained for. I do believe that it's it's much more important to develop the supportive, um, as, as Sue was emphasizing, the supportive community structures, the supportive relationships than training individuals as such, but I maybe proved wrong on that. Yeah, thank you. And I, I totally agree with uh, what Sue was saying before. I think it's a, a lot easier for people to learn resilience than it is to to teach resilience. But, um, but I do think there there's a lot of, things that we can do in terms of teaching resilience, especially at a broader community slash cultural level. Uh, for example, with, uh, if we look at first responders where paramedics, you know, would witness really traumatic things in a, a very regular basis. And a lot of the times they're really resilient to that, but it is then the, the organizational context where they're in, where they have a lack of resources, they've got conflicts with their managers, they've got tons of paperwork being forced on them. And it's those things that create vulnerability that then causes something that normally they would have been resilient against now causes them PTSD and it causes you know, trauma. So to do those type of things that, um, that we're also going out and we're teaching to, to, to the management levels and the leadership levels that here are some basic things you can do to create an environment that facilitates resilience in others. So, so in that way, and that's more practical type of things that people can do that then results in community resilience to form. So, so I definitely think there are, there are ways that we can uh, identify more precisely what are the things that can enable resilience and thereby teach those things and just try and, and as from a research perspective, really try and find what is it that it can actually make a difference, what's practical, and let's measure that over time. So, yeah, that's, I guess that's my, my view on it. I kind of object in a sort of polite way to the idea that we can teach resilience. I think I think it plays to this idea that if you, I think there are, there are things that we can learn and there are things, skills that we might be able to share. But if we think about teaching something, that implies something if you're not successful that you've that you've failed and I, and, I, and I find that very difficult. I think it's much more about saying as a society and as a community and as individuals within that, how can we work together? And there are definitely things that will help. 
And it may be that there will be cases where, for example, some kind of psychological intervention will be will will be will be useful. But I don't think that it's something that you can kind of teach in that way. And I would reframe. I would need to reframe it because otherwise we're ending up in a position where it's it's your fault if you're not if you if you don't manage it. And and I wouldn't want to work in that kind of framework. I think that we can uh, teach people to be more resilient if we allow them to be in, in a kind of control why they need to cope with adversity. So we can train them to do more ways or to allow them to use more ways of coping. This is one part of my answer. Another answer that I can say that you can uh, and it's connected to the lifespan. We found in our research that when the young population, young families need to be evacuated from the war zone, the elderly people become more strength and feel more competent because they need to hold the community and to continue with a lot of things that the young population used to do uh, during routine times. So it's also a, a, a component that I used to look at it while I am talking about resiliency, whether some, somebody has a kind of a mission or a purpose in order to better cope with the situation. So it's, as I said before, I think it's a very complex situation. And the question is when and how and to whom we relate while we are talking about resiliency. So resilience from, a, from an engineering perspective really refers to the elasticity of a structure before the structural integrity kind of breaks down. Um, but when applied to humans, we're, we're very complex beings. So I think that dichotomous understanding of you're either vulnerable and not resilient or you're resilient is not conducive to our lifetime trajectory and in response to the multitude and multidimensional stressors that we face. Uh, that being said, whether or not we can teach resilience, I don't agree with the word teach, but I think some aspects can be fostered or at least promoted. Um, and it's more so about uh, monitoring our needs, expanding our capacity, expanding our access to resources at the individual level, but then also promoting resilience at a community level where you create supportive structures, where you connect people to them uh, and, and and that allows um, individuals as well as communities to expand their resilience capacity. However, uh, I like to think of resilience as, you know, how much can you put on your, your plate at any time, recognizing that some people have paper plates, some people have metal plates, some people have concrete plates, and some people are born with broken plates. Um. Coming from a teaching perspective, I would say that resilience can definitely be taught. It's how it's taught that's crucial. Teaching didn't need to be didactic. It can, if it can be done in the context of more collaborative shared experience, kind of mutual teaching, then it can be very, very useful. I mean, I think this is a really great question and there are a lot of really interesting things that have been brought up so far, but I do think it almost kind of goes back to the idea of how we're defining resilience 
Because I mean, if you're defining resilience as an example of the ability, let's say, to cope better with stress, then maybe we're trying to teach perhaps more effective coping strategies in a sense. Um, and is that then being resilient? I guess and maybe that's more of a question. Um, but I do think it's really important to know, I guess, what are more of these psychological mechanisms that underlie resilience? Because I think if we know that a little bit better, if we are thinking about developing then interventions to improve resilience, if we know the mechanisms and we can target the mechanisms and use those mechanisms to develop really effective interventions. Yes, because I think resilience is, according to the research, you can see that it's, it's mostly context specific um, and domain specific. And even though there are transferable aspects to it, it you know, just because somebody is resilient to substance use doesn't mean that they are um, resilient in the face of any mental health condition, for example. Um, once you have a good idea of what the, the problem is and the psychological issues underpinning it, and once you have a robust definition of re the resilience processes that are relevant to that context or issue or stressor, then I think you can teach aspects of the resilience processes. So there's a multitude of processes at various ecological levels from individual to family to community to structural. And so I think that with care and with a very limited scope, yes, I think you can teach um, things within that. So for example, with um, substance misuse, you can offer space for skills sharing and development and peer education. Um, peer education in terms of teaching strictly is one of the most effective ways of teaching resilience processes. Um, but I think you always want to come back to a very limited and compassionate view on what you, it is that you're doing, that you can offer space for facilitating coping skills support. That's not going to change the structural problem that is facing that person. It will only be an ameliorative, um, limited way of supporting them to deal with the problem that they can't yet change. Um, you can offer support for um, you know, parenting skills, as long as that's contextually and culturally appropriate. Um, or just developing a peer support network for people, it's not going to solve issues of absence of parental leave, for example, right? Um, so if you always come back to the idea that resilience is a process, a dynamic process, and it is something that um, isn't down to the individual, then yes, I think there's limited scope, but you have to be really, really on it with coming back to that point, because otherwise I think there is pressure to have that one, one trick be the magic, the magic one. Yeah, I just wanted to comment on some thoughts I had as people were speaking. And I think what stuck out to me were a few things around um, resilience is not being dichotomous. It's not either you have it or you don't, but it is this iterative process over time and really importantly as everyone's mentioned across different systems and so it, you know within a person within their close relationships within the broader community so i think to the point of can you teach resilience um you know thinking about it in that way i think and who holds responsibility it's kind of you know 
everyone holds responsibility. Um, we, you know, we hold responsibility for ourselves. That doesn't mean that our communities don't have a responsibility as well. And so um, I think we can foster resilience. For me, you know, working with young children and families, I think about how I can work with families to build, uh, to strengthen relationships within the home, to reduce conflict, to help them make meaning out of the um, adversity they're experiencing, knowing that that is not sufficient um, without the broader context. Um, while also, you know, it, it can and does help mitigate the risk to children when their families strengthen their relationships. And I think we can teach relationship building. So, uh, you know, it's a, I, think, um, I think things that lead to resilience can be taught <laughs> without um, teaching resilience itself. I just wanted to share an experience that I had some years ago, which really set me to thinking about my work very, very profoundly. And that is when I was talking about resilience in children exposed to very extreme circumstances, such as family separation and armed conflict and so on, with a group of people from the human rights field, they were really angry with me and they were very angry with me for using the term resilient and resilience and they were even more angry with the idea that you can teach it and they were very very clear that when you're talking about children and young people the responsibility of society the responsibility of practitioners and policymakers and all of us communities is to protect children from adversity and the responsibility is not to teach children to how to become stronger and, and have the capacity to overcome adversity, but to actually take them away, you know, separate them from adversity. And I just, I just think we, we have to be aware that, that the, the problem with the use of the concept of teaching does imply, and as I think many people have already kind of touched on this, it does imply the idea that you're making the individual responsible for, for their, for their, ability to cope with the situation with, and you're even making them responsible for the situation. It takes away the attention, I think, from where it should be, where many of us have already said, the community, the structures, the structural disadvantage that so many individuals face is so huge that to me, teaching resilience in individuals is kind of not really the point. So I was, I was very struck by the level of criticism I received. I don't happen to agree with the human rights perspective because it doesn't feel like real world to me. You can't, unfortunately, in the real world, separate individuals and, and including children from adversity. So there has to be some kind of a, a midway there. But I think the concept of teaching individuals does feel a little bit wrong from that kind of a perspective. And uh, thank you everyone. I think we're getting a really great dialogue going here, which is, is really promising for the future podcast as well. So I'm just going to ask one more question now, which is whether there are specific uh, topics or populations or issues that you feel that the public would like to know about in relation to resilience or that you feel that they should know about in relation to resilience. As, as an idea for a future uh, future discussion, but um, it's also the the concept of proactivity with resilience, whereas resilience is often studied in terms of something bad has happened, how was resilience applied, what was the process, and all that kind of stuff. But how does the potentially the role of resilience come in as a proactive concept 
for setting yourself up for you know potentially avoiding adversity in the first place again as as joe was talking uh, just now how do you try and you know brush your teeth and floss regularly so you don't end up with a root canal type of thing you know and go through that kind of trauma so it's all these kind of proactive actions that we can take uh, from both a community level but also at an individual level because uh, that's one of the things that i i try to think about is resilience is both the reactive part and also the proactive part so that's something that I'd, I'd really like to talk more about. I think given how little research has been done on secure and forensic populations, I think it would be invaluable to get a better understanding of how resilience presents both within such populations at the group level, say at the ward level, but also at the individual level. And I think that would be invaluable um, really to um, tackling broader issues regarding mis misperceptions again due to the lack of evidence base regarding the risk such patients present well actually um i wanted to pose a question and i wondered why why we focus on populations rather than on the challenges that different groups confront i worry about i worry about the stereotyping and the labeling and the the potential stigma and so on that's associated with the focus on populations um, because then you end up, and I say that from, as, from the perspective of somebody who's worked with children engaged in sex work, living on the streets, and so on. And I see how, especially when you're dealing with the public, um, where there's, it's so easy to then start talk, using the labels of the populations, and then very quickly um, it becomes stigmatizing. And I know children who talk about how they feel um, people want to eliminate them from society because they, they pose a problem to society. So I was just curious as to why that would be the way forward for this discussion, when actually what we should be looking at is the sort of structural conditions, the environmental, the climate um, circumstances, the societal and political circumstances. I mean, you know, in the UK, we live in a country where our politicians are really creating a lot of the adversity. Even our public health crisis at the moment is largely political. It's not, so it's not just about the vulnerable populations, the people who are more likely to die as a result of getting COVID um, and so on. It's about how, how um, our societal political circumstances created vulnerabilities in different groups. Um, I do share uh, Joe's concern that looking at populations can be misunderstood, I think. Um, so I, I'm just looking at the list of um, topics and there's, there's like two populations that have been picked out specifically on the list I have, which is adulthood and older age and neurodiversity and disability. Um, and I can, uh, I guess actually children and young people, which I didn't see because that's what I work with so that's my uh, blindness to that. Um, I think if we, I think whether, whatever the, the issues of, of labeling, um, I would like to see there be a consideration of resilience for LGBTQIA plus populations, people, individuals, um, particularly because I think there have been some specific, well, there have been some specific issues with, related to COVID. I saw a really interesting article about um, older 
uh, older people with uh, older people in this context being much more vulnerable because actually the um, strange relationships uh, with a lot of family members and kind of issues around and um, also having survived AIDS epi epidemics earlier meant that like there's more fragmentation and isolation amongst older people um, who are gay. Um, so that would be something of interest and I could refer you to people, although that's something I couldn't really speak to myself. Um, and also potentially racial adversity as well. Um, I think that's really important right now. Um, in terms of mechanisms, um, social support is one of the few mechanisms that shows up across different contexts, processes and populations. So I think it would be interesting to have something uh, that looked at social support and supportive relationships. Um, so far, there's been no mention of culture and we've had a lot of discussion, very important and, and very exciting discussion about the role of relationships and community and support structures and so on. But having worked in something like 15 or 20 cult different countries, um, I see huge cultural differences. And there was a mention um, in the group of the importance of what resilience and adversity means from the perspective of those who are directly affected from the individuals that we're talking about. And that's all shaped by cultural views and cultural values and so on. And I've seen comparative research, for example, of children engaged in prostitution, where in some contexts they're disparaged and ostracized and their social connections have broken down. And in other contexts, they are actually cherished and appreciated by their families because of the financial contribution that their work makes. So taking away any value judgment about whether or not you think children should be in sex work, in prostitution, um, the point here is that the, the ones who have that social support and endorsement in that cultural context, the values there are very different. They tend to be much more resilient. They tend to have a much more positive sense of self-effect, self-efficacy and, and so on. And I do think that it needs to be one of the lenses that gets um, full discussion because you know, there are, there are ways in which different cultural views can really bear down negatively on individuals and communities and families, the shaming, the all kinds of other things that can affect the way you, you cope with difficult circumstances. That was just all I wanted to add. Just to pick up the points about lived experience and community-based experience, um, that these are very distinct ways of understanding and explaining and language and narratives about what's happening. You know, the I mean, the Rebecca and I are both in the community psychology section, and maybe others are too, uh, for the British Psychological Society. So we want to see a voice, a clearer voice, about the importance of community, um, and what we do and what we don't do. I would really like that brought in as part of the understanding, um, and just deepen that bit and what it means. What does a resilient community mean? I looked up the Scottish government uh, definition because we've got resilient building, resilient communities is. One of the things based on a culture of preparedness in which individuals, communities and organisations take responsibility to prepare for, respond to and recover from emergencies. Very narrow definition. It's amazing what you can do with it, with a bit of elasticity and uh, playing around with the system. But, uh, you know, something about understanding the maybe the structural support, that it isn't just 
how governments and policies think about community and treat community. Maybe a critical bit. We need some critical stuff. I'm not clear with myself as well, but I think something related to the COVID, I think it's very important. Because I think COVID raised the question, what does it mean to be resilient during the COVID? And it's, for me, it's a new, uh, as I assume as for all of us, it's a, it's a new challenge, the COVID, the pandemic. It's not something that we used to. We have a lot of adversity that we are, in a way, quite familiar with. But the COVID raised a lot of questions and behave a little bit different than we used. And it's almost a year in Israel. It's a year now that we exposed to the COVID. So I think something to relate to the COVID, it will be, I think, important and contribute to the expand our knowledge. And that concludes the time we have for today's podcast. So I wanted to say thank you so much. This was so fascinating and a really great start, I think, to, to developing this podcast. So thank you, everyone. It was really great to thank meet you. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing you all in the thank future you. as well. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The Resilience Research Group is a global group of researchers, practitioners, charities and organisations dedicated to developing high-quality collaborative resilience research. Our aims are to improve access to, understanding of, and quality of resilience research, and to support and aid our members in effectively developing and disseminating their research. To find out more, or to get involved, contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn.